Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. Please turn to Romans 3, verse 10. In this section, Paul quotes six passages from the Old Testament to make the point that everyone in the world is a sinner. Thus, we conclude that apart from God's mercy, His grace, and His call, no one could become righteous. And even if God did not call men to repentance, no one would even seek Him. But those who do respond, well, they respond and they receive His forgiveness, and those who do not respond to His call never receive forgiveness. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, we find the first of six passages. This one Paul quotes from Psalm 14. The 14th Psalm is one of two Psalms that I really like how they open. They open with this, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. That's Psalm 53 and Psalm 14. And so this first few verses Paul quotes from that Psalm 14 that the atheist is a fool. Amen. And I occasionally, when I speak with an atheist, I tell him, well, you realize you're a fool, right? And sometimes that goes okay, sometimes it doesn't. It occasionally actually props the door of communication open a little further, because no one has ever said to this dignified person, you're a fool. Well. Psalm 14 then continues with the substance that these next three verses encompass. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Everyone is a sinner, of course. Everyone except Jesus Christ. Paul doesn't make that exception here, does he? He doesn't spell it out. There is none righteous, no, not one, except for Jesus. He doesn't make that exception because he expects that we'll figure that out for, for ourselves. It's sufficient that elsewhere in the Bible, Paul and others declare Christ's innocence, his sinlessness and righteousness, so that we know that these verses here do not refer to him. Now, even in this book of Romans, we can see that Christ is righteous and righteousness flows through him. And John calls him Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus was the sinless Lamb of God, the spotless Passover, who died not for his own sin, but for the sin of the world. So that exception is inherent in the verse. Even though it's not there in print, we know it's there if we know the Bible. There is none righteous, no, not one, except Jesus and accept those justified by Christ. There's another exception too, right? Because if you're justified by Christ, then you are righteous. Hopefully you're righteous because otherwise you go to hell. The wicked go to hell, the righteous go to heaven. And the Bible uses that terminology throughout extensively. So there is none righteous, no, not one, except for Christ, and those 
he justifies. If you search your Bible for references to the righteous, you'll find scores of places where it refers to people who put their faith in God. So those of us in this room who are in Christ, if we're believers, if we're in the body of Christ, we are righteous. So even though the statement appears stark and all-inclusive, we realize that there are significant exceptions, namely Jesus and all those justified by him. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, verse 11. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Now, let me quote from Psalm 14, the first three verses, because that's what Paul's taking this from. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God, they are corrupt, they have done abominable works, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. They have all turned aside, they have together become corrupt, there is none who does good, no, not one. And let's compare Paul's verse 11 with David's verse 2, because David wrote Psalm 14 and that other Psalm 53. But to compare those two, here's David's verse 2, Psalm 14, 2. The Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who understand who seek God. Right? So David wrote, the Lord looks to see, are there any who understand or who seek me? Then Paul strengthens that idea by paraphrasing it, and he says, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. Now the word understand, understanding, understands, appears in the New King James about 200 times. And if we look at it, all right, Paul here says, there is none who understands. Yet Proverbs says that God gives wisdom, knowledge, and understanding to those who look to him. And those who know God have understanding, Proverbs says. They don't have all understanding, but at least some. Daniel had understanding, his own book says, as did his three companions. Those in the body of Christ, according to Paul, have spiritual understanding at least some. So again, there is none who understands is to be understood as a figure. It's hyperbole with these two constraints. Those growing in wisdom do have understanding to some extent. And the second constraint is that no man understands God fully or life fully. So no man understands it's a figure of speech. The men who have rejected God have never turned to God. They have the least understanding. Those who come to God and humbly seek wisdom from him will have the most. Now, let's talk about the last phrase. There is none who seeks after God. If God had not called us, we wouldn't have enough in us to respond of our own accord because there'd be nothing to respond to. If we're fallen men and God has made no provision to reach us and redeem us, 
we would not seek him. But God desires that all men be saved, Paul wrote to Timothy. And Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. That was in John. And in Matthew, he said, many are called, but few are chosen. So apparently God is calling people and Jesus lifted up is drawing all men to him. Well, Paul wrote here that no one seeks after God, but on Mars Hill, he said to the men of Athens in Acts 17, that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, for he is not far off from each of us. So Paul's encouraging these unbelievers to seek the Lord. But he says, none seek the Lord. You see, that too is a figure. It's not that the first two examples are obviously figures and the third is absolute and literal. They're figures. The encouragement that Paul gives to the men of Athens would be bad advice. It would be mute if his statement here were not a generalization but an absolute. Similarly, in Proverbs 8, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently will find me. Through the Bible, God encourages men to seek him. Speaking of the end of Judah's captivity in Babylon, God said, you will seek me and find me, in Jeremiah 29, when you search for me with all your heart. And even Matthew and Luke record Jesus saying, Seek and you will find. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. Now God designed mankind in such a way that if we ever fell away, he could draw us to him, pulling on the hooks that he built into us. And when you use that term hook, are there any programmers in the audience? Yeah, okay, they're programmers. Uh, at least two. Uh, Microsoft, their program architects, the guys who design their software, they put hooks into the operating system, like Windows, so that its functions can be called upon by application programs. Let's say you're writing an email program, and you need to put a time stamp on it when somebody sends outgoing email. So you've got to find out what time it is. Well, are you going to try to ask the hardware and say, hey, hardware, don't you have a clock in there? And ask the clock what time it is? That would be difficult. So Microsoft puts hooks in the operating system, and you ask the operating system, what time is it? And they tell you. Well, God put hooks in us so that even though we are sinners, he can draw things from us. He can pull us. He can call all men to repentance. Now, we have free will, whereas Microsoft's operating systems, they don't have free will. They're just flat out fatalistic. <laughs> Actually, I like their pr products quite a bit. But uh, we can say no to God. When he pulls on that hook within us, we can say no. So if God did not call us, none would even seek him. It is the echo of God in your conscience, the God-shaped vacuum in your soul, the yearning for acceptance and love that God has carved into our hearts 
that pulls us toward him, as does his Holy Spirit convicting us and his followers urging us to believe in God. So with all that system working on us, and God is drawing us to him. So no man seeks after God, yes, of his own accord, apart from the draw of God. And it's thanks to the Lord himself that we seek him. If it wasn't for him and his hand on our lives, and even in the creation, how he knew the possibilities, and so he made Adam and Eve in such a way that once they fell, they would still desire him. So in that sense, this, just like the previous two, are figures. They're not absolutes. Now, what would a Calvinist do with this? Well, there are none righteous, no, not one, total depravity. Okay, well, we could debate that, and we will at another time. But here, there is no one who seeks after God. Irresistible grace. God pulls you. If God didn't save you first, you'd never seek him. If he didn't save you first, if he didn't elect you first, you'd never have faith in him. So only the elect have faith. Whereas in reality, those who have faith become the elect in the body of Christ. So no one seeks after God except for those who do, who respond to his call. Again, verse 12, they have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. None who does good, no, not one. So no one does good, except for the redeemed in Israel. Some of them did well, and the redeemed in the body of Christ, some of them have done good works and hopefully still do, and except for even unbelievers at times. You see, there is none who does good, no, not one, except for the Good Samaritan, whose charity Christ identified as an example of loving your neighbor, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the mother who was willing to yield custody of her own child to save its life when Solomon judged between the women, that was good, a selfless act to save your child's life. But of course, the sum total of an unbeliever's life, of his works, is not good. The total is sin and rebellion against God although there are, are particular acts that men do, and we see in the Bible, that some are praiseworthy. They are good. But overwhelmingly, to characterize their lives, they're sinners in deep rebellion against God. However, regularly, the redeemed do good, and on occasion, so do the wicked. So we have a very strong list of verses in here, here and we could take them as absolutes if we divorce them from the rest of the Bible. If it says no one understands, no one seeks, no one is righteous, no one does good, except for maybe about 300 verses we can find addressing those topics, saying that quite a few people do all those things. So the exceptions, not only here, but throughout the Bible, they're inherent in the text. If you understand the author, God, and the story, then you're not thrown with the exceptions. You read it and you understand the thrust of what Paul is saying. 
Now, verse 13, the first two phrases, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. So Paul quotes this from Psalm 5. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. In Psalm 5, verse 9, it says they flatter with their tongue. Now, from their throats escape words of death. So the comparison to an open tomb. Those in rebellion against God, if you listen to their counsel, you'll be destroyed. And they flatter. Think about flattery. Flattery is one of the great sins of the democratic politician. He flatters the people. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Ugh. He unjustly flatters the flock to fleece them. That's what he does. He flatters the flock to fleece them. And then the remainder of this verse, 13c, the poison of asps is under their lips. That's from Psalm 140. Now, a poisonous asp, that was a small venomous snake in Egypt that they maybe don't use that terminology any longer, but it's thought to have been a cobra, a poisonous asp. Verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now that's from Psalm 10, verse 7. As Paul is going through this list that he's pulling out from different books of the Old Testament, do you think he has to stop between each one to look it up? Get out Isaiah. <laughs> this big scroll, unroll it across the room. Oh, that's the wrong part. Keep going out the door. Get Psalms, all 150 of them. I don't believe that's what he was doing. It seems to me that Paul had memorized a tremendous amount of scripture. And some people are good at rote memorization where they memorize an entire chapter or even a book word for word. Other people don't readily have that skill or ability, but they immerse themselves in the Bible. They listen to teaching tapes. They read. They think about God a lot. And so when they're talking to someone, Bible passages roll off their lips, even if they don't know exactly where it's from. And they might not be able to say, the proverb says that that path leads to destruction. But they can say, there's a way that seems right to a man, and its end is the way of death. Ken, what's some of the things you say to people out on the street? How about, the wicked flee when no man pursues? <laughs> now, what verse is that? I don't remember. <laughs> but they're in our minds. So when we need them, they're there because the word of God becomes a part of you. And it didn't come with the chapter and verse numbers in it. We've added those. So it's more important to know what it says than exactly where. As a student, it's good to know where so you can find it and especially to teach other people. But I think what happened with Paul is this was a stream of consciousness. These six verses, these six quotes from the Old Testament just flowed out of him because it was a part of him, the scriptures, from before he was saved even and then after he was saved. Now, if that's true, if these were all in Paul's mind and as he's writing, he says, now let me quote verses that say that everybody's a sinner. So he starts thinking of them, and one after the other, he writes them down. 
paraphrases a couple of them, and he's going to town. Well, where does inspiration fit in if he was doing that? Wasn't this all scripted in heaven, scripted before the foundation of the earth, and then it was just, it was just given like to a dictation, to a stenographer, and Paul sitting there typing away? No, Paul had a scribe, and he was dictating. And he was saying what was in his mind to say. Yes, God inspired that these books of the Bible, that they would be written and become scripture, but he worked in and through real men in a real way. These men wrote about real events from their own experience, from their own education, things they learned, either from teachers, rabbis, who read them the scripture, their own readings, and at times, directly from God, through visions, signs, and wonders, God would communicate with them, and they would write. And assuming that they wrote what God wanted to have written, God inspiring them, leading them, then God also inspired, he led that their writings would be incorporated into the scriptures and become eventually part of the canon. The next three verses come from Isaiah 59 and from Proverbs chapter 1. Their feet are swift to shed blood, Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. Now, that first part, their feet are swift to shed blood. Question, is everyone, I have a lot of pro-life activists in here, so maybe I'll get flack, but I don't think so. Is everyone a murderer? Now, I have a police officer here, he's saying no. I agree, no, everyone's not a murderer. Now, Paul writes in this passage, this section, he's talking about everybody, right? None. No, not one. Not one. They have all. They have all together. And then he says, their feet are swift to shed blood. Well, he's describing the lot of the entire human race. And as a group, taken as a group, murder is characteristic of the human race. Murder and stealing and adultery, that's characteristic. But it doesn't mean that every person commits every one of those crimes. Not everyone is a murderer. Yes, if they're angry without cause, they share in the guilt of breaking the whole law. They've broken the law. But still, internalized anger is not the same as the shedding of innocent blood. A baby who dies as an infant, for example, has not shed innocent blood, has he? Children that are aborted, they're not guilty of murder. They're victims. So throughout this passage, there are exceptions, significant exceptions. We have to understand it in its context and the figures as they're intended to be understood. So not all these comments apply to every person individually but they form a generalization of our human race. And they also generalize each unbeliever's life, generally speaking, <laughs> overall. <laughs> so Paul's sixth quote in verse 18 comes from Psalm 36. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And thus ends Paul's summary condemnation of the human race apart from God, 
and his statement of their need for God. That's what he's putting forth here. And now we move from his quotes of the Old Testament to strong statements of his own theology, which we've already covered is somewhat different than the theology that came before him because God gave him a different message, not circumcision, but uncircumcision. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. This verse we need to make famous. This needs to take its place somewhere near John 3.16. It's not that big yet, but someday we'll put it in neon lights. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law is a ministry of condemnation. You are guilty. That's what the law says. Why? Because of our flesh, the law brings guilt. But to whom does the law speak? There are many Christians who teach that we should keep the law, that we're saved to keep the law. They say you can never be saved by the law, but you're saved to keep the law so that the law is a ministry and that you're to abide by it. You're to live by it. But to whom does this law speak? Well, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Many Christians hold contradictory beliefs. They will agree with Paul that we're not under the law when they're forced to, because it says it right there, you are not under the law, but under grace. So they say, well, we're not under the law, yet they teach that believers should keep the law. How does that work? If you're not under it, why would you have to keep it? But that's the contradictory teaching of, I think, millions of Christians. If you are not under the law, then you should not be striving to keep the law. It's a meaningless concept as far as any positive outcome is concerned. But as far as negative outcomes, it's loaded with trouble. You can't even hear what the law says in one sense if you're not under it because whatever the law says, it speaks only to those who are under it. Right? Isn't that pretty clear? Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. To interpret the Bible, you must know who said what to whom. And here it is the law speaking, and it only speaks to those under the law. And what does it say to them? You are justified. <laughs> no. It tells them that they are guilty before God. Guilty before God. So think for a moment about God's justice. In the Mosaic law, it says, keep the Sabbath. And if you don't, you're cut off. And circumcise. And if you don't, you're cut off. Well, what if a pagan growing up in India 2,500 years ago, and he never heard of Moses, never heard of Abraham, never heard of the idea of circumcision or the Sabbath? Is God going to judge him for not circumcising and not keeping the Sabbath? No, he will not. Because God is a just God. And he holds us accountable for what we have heard. To whom much is given, much is required. He does not hold us accountable for that which we have not heard. But 
God gave that pagan a law written on his heart, his own conscience, which we've talked about in the last couple classes. And so if he goes to hell, it will be with his own conscience judging him, condemning him, and sentencing him, along with, of course, the concurrence of God and his angels and the redeemed will concur with his conscience that, yes, you are condemned. But if you hear the Christian message, that was a pagan in India who never heard, the unsolicited, as we call them. If you hear the Christian message of the Ten Commandments and then of Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and you reject him, you reject the Messiah, then you are under the law and you're guilty before God.